listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. video shows we are in Daniel 3 this morning. You can go ahead and be turning there if you have your Bible or you can open that up. Um, and we are picking up from where we left off uh, last week at the end of chapter 2. It's only been seven days since uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, since we last talked about King Nebuchadnezzar. He was last seen falling on his face, paying homage to Daniel for not only knowing the king's dream, but interpreting it as well. And he tells Daniel at the end of chapter 2 that Daniel's God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings, and hallelujah, right? We can rejoice that the king's heart was changed, and he started maybe meeting with Daniel, going to life group and DNA and trying his best to follow after God, right? Uh, Surely, if you knew those truths about God, that he is the God of gods, that you'd want to do your best to follow him, to know more about him, maybe, hopefully, but that's not the case for the king this morning. We don't know how long it lasted, that that change of hearts that King Nebuchadnezzar had, but we know that this morning, as we pick up, it's been about nine years since chapter two. And what we're about to see here is that in a minute, the king's heart is back to his old sinful ways, that he wants everyone to know him. And maybe it's the people around him saying, oh, king, live forever, that, that got to his head, and he started believing that he would live forever, and that he was worthy of that worship. The Israelites who we've been following along are still in captivity. It's been, like I said, it's been nine years, and Nebuchadnezzar is still king in Babylon. And I know that video did a great job of showing what happened, but we're going to look at Daniel 3 and see what God's word says. And as we do, I want us to see this morning that with Christ as the object of our faith, we can overcome any obstacle to our faith. So if you will, turn to chapter 3, and we'll start in verse 1. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, and the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud. He said, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So we start this chapter off seeing that King Nebuchadnezzar has this 
huge gold statue made of himself. And this thing is tall, right? It's about 90 feet tall. I did the math, and that's about 15 mark towers stacked on top of one another. Uh, maybe more or maybe less. I don't know how tall Mark is. Uh, I, I imagine around six feet or so. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And ironically enough, King Nebuchadnezzar sets this up, whether intentionally or not, who knows, really close to the site that the Tower of Babel would have been built as well. The Tower of Babel being built in Genesis 11, where people wanted to build this city that had this great tower that reached the top of the heavens. And why? So they could make a name for themselves. And we see here in Daniel 3 that King Nebuchadnezzar wants to make a name for himself. Well, he really wants to solidify the name that he already has, right? He's already king. People know who he is, yet he still wants to reinforce in the people's minds that he's a big deal. And he invites all these people to come to the revealing of the statue. And these are important people who I honestly have no clue what a lot of them do. I know they had prefix in Harry Potter, so we might have to tread a little carefully there. Um, and I work with treasurers all the time, and they control money coming in and out of the government, and they know that they're important, and they like to remind people all the time that they're important. But the king calls all these important people to witness the revealing of his statue, and they come to it. And whether that's by choice or not, we don't know, but we know that for their sake, it was probably a good thing that they were there. I want to reread this royal decree that we saw starting in verse 4. It says, the herald proclaimed out loud, everyone hears it. You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace. This royal decree is setting the stage for what's about to come. And it should be obvious to you, Christian, that this decree, that is set forth by the king is going to be problematic for anyone hoping to faithfully follow God. And most Christians, most people in this room know from an early age what the first two of the Ten Commandments are. Now, you might conveniently forget the fifth one when your mom or dad asks you to wash the dishes or do the laundry or they don't let you get your way, right? But most still know the first two and they try to stick to it. And that's, you shall have no other gods before me and you shall not make unto thee any graven images. And so the first thing I want us to see this morning is that you and I, and in a minute, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are going to face obstacles to our faith. And this statue of King Nebuchadnezzar is going to be an obstacle to the faith of faithful Israelites. And we might not be able to see any day coming where it's expected of us to worship a 90-foot statue or face death but we still deal with similar obstacles to our faith. The statue itself presents an, an obstacle of idolatry. And an idol is anything besides God that we look to for purpose, significance, meaning, or value. And it isn't as all, always as obvious as a literal man-made idol, or, uh, but it might come in the form of other things. And sometimes these are good things that the Lord has given us that we end up making um, more than we should, right? Making it the greater thing. 
uh, sometimes those good things, uh, they're not idolatrous until we make it the ultimate. Sometimes these are uh, good things that you look around your life, you look at your kids, your spouse, our jobs, and our hobbies, and we make them idols. And I realize that only two of those apply to me, so that means I'm only half as likely as to commit idolatry as the rest of you. Uh, I'm joking, of course, because the greatest temptation that we have is like King Nebuchadnezzar and to idolize ourselves. And nobody is immune to that. We want to build up statues metaphorically as a monument to ourselves. We want all the important people to come out and come out here when we have ceremonies. A lot of times we want people to worship us and say how great we are. And since the earliest days, God reminds his people, calling them to himself. He reminds them time and time again of who they were created to worship. He's quick to remind them that there's no joy to be found in the worship of dead idols. He's shown them that they are not worthy of the worship that they think they deserve. In Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they know what happened to their forefathers. And we should too. We should study the Old Testament and know what happened to the saints of old. They grew up hearing the stories of the Israelites provoking God to anger in their idolatry. They grew up memorizing these stories and memorizing those commandments to worship God alone, to not worship idols. And those words, those commandments were bound on their heart, bound as a sign on their hand as, or as frontlets between their eyes, right? So that even while they are in exile, they knew their God and their God knew them. So this decree will be an obstacle to the faith of the followers of God who wish to abstain from idolatry, and that should be all of us. Verse 7, we'll see the next obstacle to our faith is conformity. It says, therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. The rest of the people had no problem bowing down and worshiping the statue in front of them. Everyone around them is doing it. And not only are they saving their lives by not being thrown into a fiery furnace, they don't have to test the, king, the king's decree on that. They know that he will. They trusted that the king was totally capable of that. But here's another thing. Nothing bad was happening to them while they were worshiping the statue. Their lives weren't affected by it. And I say that, but I wonder if, like, King Nebuchadnezzar was kind of like a troll and he would wake up at 3 a.m. and command music to be played so people have to go worship, something uh, I would do probably. Uh, and also, did all these things have to be played at once? I should know these answers. I don't. Uh, that's a lot of instruments at one time, or was it just any of these at any one time? I was uh, riding here listening to music today. I'm like, man, our lives are filled with music. We would have to worship a lot. But how bad would it really be to conform to what the king is asking? The king has treated them well. They were promoted at the end of chapter 2 uh, to the affairs over Babylon. They actually maybe even helped get this statue built and dedicated to the king. Yet they were willing to defy this king who has been good to them even when conforming would be sinful. So I would say beware of conforming when it goes against how God has called you to live your life as it's laid out in Scripture, even when it seems harmless. 
or that maybe you won't get hurt. You may look around at a room full of people all defying God and his word, and you have to be the only one to stand firm and say, no, I will not do this. I, will, I know my God, and he knows me. Conforming is not worth damaging that relationship with God. And that's exactly what all the other people around them are doing, all falling in line as expected and planned by King Nebuchadnezzar. Next, we'll see uh, the final obstacle to our faith this morning are the accusers. Read along with me in verse 8. He says, Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They, they declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And I'm not going to lie, there's a, a part of me that appreciates this, right? You see, my teenage years were full of rebellion and mischief, and, and it came to almost like a game of me seeing how much I can toe the line without stepping over, though there was plenty of times I willingly stepped over. But since then, I've become a huge rule follower, and I don't like it when people don't follow the rules. Uh, if you ever wondered, I love board games and a complete joy to have over at Game Night. Just follow the rules, right? Uh, but when I see this, there's still this ingrained loyalty above all else out of me that's quick to think that, you know, snitches get stitches, you Chaldeans. Um, either way, we see accusers, for whatever reason, being an obstacle to the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And from what we're told here, these three, they were not causing any big trouble for the king. They weren't out there trying to convince people not to worship the statue, though that would have been perfectly okay as well. They just weren't conforming. They weren't disobeying what God had commanded them to do, the same God that King Nebuchadnezzar recognized nine years ago. But they had these accusers who wanted to see them brought down because of their faith. Maybe they were just good kingsmen and just wanted to see the king's law obeyed. Or maybe they had a disdain for these Jewish men who were raised in such a high position and they saw an opportunity to bring them down. But as we consider these obstacles to our faith in the first 12 verses, I hope we would prayerfully consider them. Know that we are not immune to them, that we will face these, that we will need to be steadfast in watching out for them and also watching out for them in others. As I considered what it would look like to have accusers in my life, I, I realize that if I'm not keeping my pride in check, I will view everyone as uh, an accuser. If I'm not submitting myself to God's word and his discipline, I will get defensive about my actions and justify them. But Christian, you are going to have people who might first be seen as an accuser because they're calling out sin in your life. And don't let the truth that there are accusers out there be a reason to dismiss the love of brothers and sisters in Christ who will say to you, brother or sister, you have sinned and you need to repent. God has called us into a family, and the fact that someone would say that to you is a proof.
proof of not only their love for you, but also God's love for you. That he would put someone in your life to pull you back from darkness that you may be walking in and call you back to the light is a sign of his great mercy and love. And that leads us to the next thing I want us to see in Daniel 3, and that is the companion of the faithful. Verse 13 starts with this. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I, I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have been sold out, and they've been brought before the king. And we see them being accused together. And they're facing the king of the most powerful country in the world, at this time, who's in rage. He's found out that not only are there people out there who are defying his order to worship the statue, it's people who are over the affairs of the kingdom. It's people inside his own cabinet, if you will. And not only does he know it, but he knows that other people know it. He can't just sweep this under the rug and let it go or all his authority would be undermined. And he still believes that he has ultimate at the end of verse 15, we see that clearly where he asks the question, who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Do you hear the condescension in his question? That he really believes that nobody will be able to save these three. And what he commands, even their death, will be done. Do you know who he is, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? He's that dude that has a 90-foot statue of him. No one questions who he is. He's the ruler of the land, and his life is in your hands. Why would he have a reason to think otherwise? But at the same time, we can appreciate that he's trying to show them a little grace, right? According to his decree, they should be cast into the furnace immediately for defying it even once. But the king reminds them of the law he set up and gives them a chance to obey. And this is when we see the beauty of having companions come in. Look at verse 16. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. It records them answering together as one. And I'm not saying that on their own they would have faltered. I have no reason to believe that. But what I'm saying is when facing persecution or difficult times, it's a sweet blessing and a gift of God that you have friends there by your side. When you can stand against the accuser, in this case, the most powerful living king at the time, and boldly answer him as one, which is what they do. He goes on in verse 17, and they answer, If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So we see that they are accused together, they answer together, and they defy together as well. The king has 
made it very clear what would happen to them. He made it clear in verse 6, and then he reiterates it again, that death awaits those who refuse to worship the image. Yet I appreciate that these three didn't even take time to consider it, right? They didn't have to have a prayer huddle. They didn't have to fast for days or seek other people's advice. Their faith was being pressed, and in that moment, they had to make a decision. They knew that the king's command meant, uh, defying the king's command meant death, but they knew defying God's command, uh, God's command meant separation from him. And they viewed obedience to God as greater than obedience I don't know about you, but when I hear that, I'm reminded of Christ's word in Matthew 10, where he says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And it's understandable to to fear death, to consider how we might be able to avoid. I think that's kind of human nature, right? Most of you wear a seatbelt. I do sometimes. If I'm riding a bicycle on the road, I wear a helmet. If I'm riding a roller coaster, like I triple check the safety Maybe like check it nine or ten times. Um, if my chicken comes out a little raw, I don't eat it. You know, just practical things to keep myself safe. And if I'm walking through the city at night, I have my head on a swivel. Because if there's anything I can do to keep myself safe, I want to do it. It's even okay to fear evil men who might try to take our life and take action to try to stop that from happening. But our greater fear should be that we are found to be living in disobedience to God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew who to fear. And it wasn't a fear that made them cower. It didn't make them weak. Instead, it's the fear that made them bold and strong. How many of us would stand toe-to-toe and say, we have no need to answer you? It's not even up for debate. The God that you're mocking, you're doubting his power to save is the one who's in control of all things. Reminded of Daniel's prayer in chapter 2, right, where he says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong all wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He's the king that we are choosing to obey. He's the king that we are choosing to worship. They know who's in control, and they do that because, and so and we see them uh, trust together. We see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego trust together. And I wonder what it means to trust the Lord. And I think we see it perfectly laid out here in Daniel 3. They trust that the Lord will protect them because they are obeying him. But they know that it's not, their life isn't guaranteed and that their life is going to end one day. But that doesn't make their trust waver at all. It says if they know that there's more to this life than their earthly bodies, right? As God's people, they had in mind that there is a future hope that they were waiting for. They had this future glory in mind that has yet to be revealed to them, and yet it keeps them moving forward. This glory that we know in Romans 8 tells us is not worth comparing to the sufferings that they might go through. And they don't have this truth yet. We get to rejoice in that. They didn't, but they are still rejoicing in that hope, that future glory, that any pain Uh, they could expect from the furnace isn't even on a scale to compare with the glory that they will soon experience. Paul makes it clear in Philippians 3, right, that everything he could possibly go through, and if anyone went through a lot for his faith, it's Paul, or, or anything that he might have that is good is nothing compared to knowing his God, his Savior, Christ Jesus. 
earlier at the start of the, the letter to the Philippians, he tells us that Paul, that is, is torn between his two desires to depart and be with Christ or keep serving the church, which he says to depart and be with Christ is far better. And it's true, we get to see those things from a full revelation of God's word. The full story of redemption has happened at this point. And it might be easier for you to think that Paul or us this morning, it's easier for us to say those things because we know what Christ has done. But what about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Why are they trusting? Why are they saying it's far better for them to walk into a fiery furnace instead of obeying King Nebuchadnezzar? And they're trusting because they know their God. They're trusting because God has proved himself faithful time and time again and worthy of their obedience. They most likely are considering the commands of their faithful Lord, right? Where in Leviticus 18, he says, keep my decrees and laws for the man who obeys them will live forever. I am the Lord, he says. Later on in Leviticus, he says, you are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy and have set you apart from the nations to be my own. But honestly, we can just look back at the end of chapter two in verse 44 where uh, Daniel interprets the, the dream and he ends it with saying, and in those days of, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. They know that it's God who has the established kingdom that will never be destroyed. They know it's him who is worthy of worship and praise, and it's a joy to be alongside the family of God when facing persecution and trusting together. Next, we'll see that the, the companions of the faith experience trials together. Starting in verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was actually, uh, more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their, uh, their other garments. And they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. King Nebuchadnezzar was so upset that these three, that, uh, with these three that his full vent is coming out, right? And Psalms 29, uh, verse 1 would say that that person is a fool who gives full vent to a spirit. He wants them, though, to know that he is the real king and put his full power and might on display through heating the furnace extremely hot. These furnaces that were usually made for making bricks and melting gold, which according to, to Google, it requires a temp of almost 2,000 degrees to do. So it's about as hot as summer here in Georgia. You can imagine that being seven times hotter than usual, uh, why that would destroy the men escorting these three that got too close. These men who were loyal to the king, obeying him. The king gives no thought, though, to how his actions are going to hurt his people. All he sees is vengeance. And I don't know the inner workings of the heart or mind of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. As they face this trial, did their faith waver? What kind of 
doubts crept into their mind as they approached the furnace. That extreme heat consumed the guards that were beside them. I want to encourage us, though, that, that we receive strength for our faith with the people we're with. Even if it does waver a little bit or not, how emboldening is it to know that you're walking side by side into the furnace, likely to die for all you know beside your friends who are reminding you of the truths about the God you serve, reminding you that he's the creator of everything, reminding you that our deliverance is not as important as our obedience. I'm gonna repeat that because it's as true for us today as it was for them. Our deliverance is not as important as our obedience. And I just wanna say that that obedience is strengthened with the community around you if that community is also being obedient. I think it's uh, good to look around at the people that we're regularly with and ask ourselves, are these people drawing me closer to God? Are they encouraging me in my spiritual walk? Are their lives examples that I would want to see in my life? Would they walk with me into the furnace? Would I walk with them into the furnace? And sometimes answering no to these questions doesn't mean ditching them and abandoning them, but sometimes that means you have to be the one that raises the bar. Encourage them in their walk. Call them to a higher standard that you want to see yourself out, see yourself at as well. Call out the sins you see in their lives and implore them to repent as you would hope that they would do for you as well. Lastly, after the obstacles of the faith, the companions in the faith, they get to see the object of their faith. Look at verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not uh, had any power over their, the bodies of those men. The hair on their heads were not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue this way. Then the, kingdom, then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Now, if you never heard this story before, you might be thinking like, oh, great, there's four now. That makes sense. Daniel finally showed up to the scene. Um, Nope, not Daniel. We don't know where Daniel is uh, while all this is going on, but it's a great day to miss work. Uh, 
this is the only chapter in all of Daniel where he's not mentioned. But no, it wasn't Daniel. Uh, but not in what we see is not only Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walking around the furnace as if it's a day at the beach, the furnace that's so hot that it kills men just by getting close to it. They're in it, but there's another man there too. And from what we know, what we can see clearly more than they could, more than the onlookers could, we can safely see this as a Christophany or uh, the pre-incarnate Christ meeting his people. King Jesus appeared coming down from his throne to protect Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in their trials, comforting them, protecting them. And we don't know what was said, if anything, in the furnace. But we know that the mere presence of Christ is the greatest comfort that we ever need. We know that the object of their faith, regardless of how much they understood at that time, was showing himself to be stronger than any obstacle that might be put in front of it. That it's more secure than any relationship that we can have here. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. And that's a beautiful truth that makes a 14,000 degree fire not even phase us. King Nebuchadnezzar sees this and other people see it too. His display of uh, what he thought was gonna be um, omnipotence quickly backfires on all those important people that were there at the beginning witnessing the king's command, um, they witness now that the king's command had no power. Not because they weren't carried out, but because ultimately that king has no control. And those that defied him were wholly protected, so much so that their clothes didn't even smell like fire. And you know, uh, if you've been around even a small campfire, that's unusual, right? Uh, next week we'll be getting in from Shine about this time, and we'll smell like sweat and campfire smoke. Sorry in advance. And, and the king has to acknowledge in front of all these people, all these important people, that something great has happened. Someone more worthy of worship than himself is now in the mix. And that king protected his servants, which is a far cry from what King Nebuchadnezzar did. And he ends his chapter making another royal decree similar to the one we saw at the start of the chapter, but instead of calling people to worship God and stop worshiping him, his image, he just commands the people not to talk against their God, which is rightfully a step in the right direction, but still fully misses the mark, not calling the people to embrace the God who is the God of gods. And not only that, but then we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get promoted again for their obedient disobedience which I really appreciate. A few quick points of application. I would encourage you to examine your hearts for obstacles to your faith this week, especially those in the form of idols. We're guilty of building up idols just as much as King Nebuchadnezzar. And God has called you to turn from those idols and worship him. And he doesn't do that out of an ego, but he does that because he knows who we were created to worship. He knows what will bring us joy in our lives, and that's the worship of him. Worshiping the God that we were created to be with. Next, embrace the community that God has called you in. If you're not part of a life group or DNA, I would encourage you to join one, but also don't let it stop there. This body is full of some amazing brothers and sisters in Christ. I would encourage you to get to know those who you don't know. Um, be blessed by them. 
as I know that they will be blessed by you as well. And lastly, I would encourage you to know the object of our faith. Revelation 5 tells us that one day all nations, all tribes, and all tongues will be worshiping God. And it's not because of any threat of a furnace or threats of being torn limb from limb, but because God will be seen in his full glory and full majesty, and the people will see who's worthy to be worshiped, and they won't be able to help but worship God the creator. We see Christ in this as the object of their worship. Christ was a reward for the faithfulness for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but we know that that he's our reward as well. And we know that faith that we have is a gift from God and that unlike what we see this morning, our faith is going to falter. We might try to back away from the furnace or wonder if that's what we should be doing because we've all sinned before we knew Christ and we have all sinned since we've known him. But I would ask you to rejoice, sinner, that Christ not only came off his throne for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but he came off his throne years later to live that perfect life that we were commanded to live, yet always fell to do, so that he might be our sacrifice into the family of God. So that rejoice that although he came off his throne and experienced the sufferings of our sin, experienced death on our behalf, that we know that he resurrected three days later and ascended back to his throne where he reigns and rules now and forevermore. He will be the object of our worship for eternity, and he should be the object worthy of our worship now. And so we're going to go into communion, which is something that we do every week here at South Point. And we do that because Christ came down and his body was sacrificed. His body was broken on our behalf. His blood was poured out for us. And so we take communion remembering that. And this meal is for believers, those who have put their trust in Christ. And so, family, if you are doing that this morning, after I pray, I would encourage you to get up and join us as we take communion.